Yeah. Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of Emacs.L. In this episode, we have Charles Lowell. He'll be talking about JS and about sharing Emacs configs company-wide. So uh, hello, Charles. Hey, Daniel. How's it going? Thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah, good, good. Uh, glad you can make it. All right, sweet. So let's get started. Um, the first question is pretty much how did you get into Emacs? How was that adventure like? So this is actually, uh, I actually haven't thought about my Emacs origin story uh, for a while. Uh, <laughs> but it, it started at my first, the very first startup uh, that I worked back when I was 18 years old. Uh, uh-huh. So dating myself, this is probably 1995. Uh, so a long, long time ago, although, you know, not so long in, in terms of Emacs time. Um, <laughs> but, uh, we were in, in those days, it was a e-commerce, um, startup and we, we would do our development by logging into a server that had a, kind of our, um, a checkout of the CVS repository and we would edit the code and then, um, so, and then, and then go from there. And we had uh, a senior developer on the project who, you know, had opinions about editors and every one of us, all of us were using, you know, kind of a a collection of, I think it was either Nano or Joe. There was like Joe's own editor, which was really popular at the time, which was kind of like a Nano clone. Um, Nobody was using VI uh, or or Emacs. And so after kind of pair programming with us a number of times, um, this developer was like, no. Uh, And he actually encrypted all the other editors uh, he encrypted oh. the executables <laughs> for all the other editors wow. uh, on on the on this server, so that you we couldn't actually even open them. Uh, so the only one he the only ones that he didn't encrypt were uh, VI and Emacs because uh, he considered those to be like actual editors. Uh, and so, <clears throat> um, so uh, so we all just started using Emacs at that point. Um, but then, so that was kind of at my very first experience. So I kind of learned the basic key bindings and navigation and editing, uh, but not really any of the power features. Um, and then at my second job uh, was a big Java application um, and, or it was a big Java shop. And so we got, I got into much more of the heavier weight tools. Uh, so IntelliJ uh, was something that we used. TogetherJ uh, was another one. Visual Age for Java. Um, what was it? There was another one, Eclipse. All right, the big one, like Eclipse. And so everybody was kind of big on those things because it really is kind of magical, the type of insights that those tools were able to provide on your code. And so I migrated away from, I was actually using Emacs for doing Java code for a long time there, but it was, it actually was, I was looking at the things that the people were doing with these big tools that were kind of analyzing their Java code bases. And I was like, okay, I need to, I need to get into this uh, because it wasn't not as good of an editing experience. And so <clears throat> I worked with IntelliJ, I worked with um, Eclipse and then, but then once I moved away from Java and started getting back into more lightweight languages like Ruby and JavaScript, uh, the, the tools became more lightweight. And so I was using things like TextMate and uh, there was one other tool. But then at some point, TextMate became kind of abandonware. And so the kind of options, and this was about four years ago, the options were move back to, you know, some of the uh, a mainstream tool like Sublime or move back to, you know, something like, I think Adam was really new at that point. Uh, but I was like, you know what? 
I used Emacs back in the day. I'm, you know, heard really, really great things about it. There were a couple of different podcasts. And I actually watched uh, this one podcast that this guy, um, I'm going to talk, I'm going to, well, the guy, the Emacs rocks uh, guy, I watched a couple of his podcasts um, that he yeah. did back in like 2011, 2012. I was like, all right, I'm in. Uh, I'm going to do this. And so that was, that was kind of my second entry into it. And I'm, I said that I was going to do it for a year and then move on to something else. And, but I never looked back once I got into it. And I really, you know, having kind of the perspective of, you know, 15 years of software development, it was a much better tool for me back than it was when I was 18. Well, so. <laughs> that's, that's, that's interesting. So that was a pretty big gap between the Emacs usage from the first yeah, time to... Yeah, yeah. So I'm not like, you know, I'm not a guru or a wizard. I'm just, I'm still delving and getting, you know, getting into it and, and, and trying to understand it. Uh, but it, um, it uh, yeah, it's been, it's been fantastic. And it's exposed me to, you know, I learn Lisp and as a result, you know, then learn closure because of, uh, you know, having such a good time working with Emacs Lisp. Um, and so, so yeah, it's been, it's been great. Nice. Nice. I'm still, I'm still a little amazed. The whole, uh, that guy encrypted all the executables for the other. That's <laughs> it was a hard, it was, yeah, it was hardcore. It was harsh, but it was, it was totally the right call. Um, because we were wasting time with, we were wasting time with, you know, amateur editors, things that didn't really have any power except to do kind of inline editing. Um, and I mean, it's amazing that, you know, Emacs couldn't even do half the stuff then that it does now. Yeah. I've heard that um, from talking from most, uh, most folks uh, that the Emacs, uh, how much Emacs has grown within, you know, from the nineties to now is mm-hmm. pretty huge so yeah i mean i'm i'm thankful i never got this all uh you know from the 90s side i'm thankful that i only started using it a couple of years ago so <laughs> yeah it was pretty pretty opaque uh back then right. I think it was so powerful <laughs> as editors go like the you know you, the basic things like being able to record macros and being able to you know interactively call any uh list function um you know, it was it was all there, but there's definitely been a renaissance. I would even say in the last ten years, uh, of people really starting to do amazing things. Is there, you know, because before it was it was I guess Emacs was actually kind of on the out. There was like X X Emacs was ascendant, and um, yeah, nobody really used GNU Emacs that much, um, and uh, so yeah. Okay, all right, right on. So. Since uh, one of the reasons I reached out to you was because I saw that your company has a Emacs wide config. So, out mm-hmm. of curiosity, how many people actually uh, use Emacs within your company? So, we're actually a fairly small shop um, right now. We have four uh, developers. Um, although people who have used and been exposed to Emacs uh, and the kind of shared configuration over the last four years is probably around ten. Uh, I would say, uh, but even at ten people, you start you know you you start to reap the benefits of scale, uh, and and the benefits of having a shared configuration. Um, okay, sweet, right on. Yeah, uh, I think it's more feasible with uh, you know like a smaller company instead of trying to go enterprise with something huge mm-hmm. like HP. You're not trying to convert right. it. Out. 
Right, yeah. right. <laughs> Every, that would be nice. <laughs> right, no. But I think you can still, you know, within within HP, in the same way that you can have little kind of startups within big companies, you can have little pockets of people who agree uh, to do stuff that like that. Because I think it, you know, I think the value that it, we derive from it is definitely derivable from a company like HP um, in the sense that the reason um, that we use a share configuration uh, is because that way every single person is able to benefit from one, the discoveries that other people make, um, but also the things that they bring in from the the community. And I guess that's a form of discovery too. Uh, And that there's just like a low friction for cooperation so that if I'm working with somebody, I'm working on their computer, um, I can, you know, I know what all the key bindings are. I know what all the installed packages are. I know what, you know, everything can do. And then, you know, kind of the third benefit is that you get a kind of a rock solidness. Like it's, there's, it's, it's not buggy because a lot of people have to use it. And, you know, if you are maintaining your own configuration, you might be willing to tolerate some sort of sharp corner or rough edge. Whereas if everybody's doing it, then other, everybody's going to be thinking about it. And then they're going to, they're going to shave that rough corner down. And then the beauty of also having it shared is to, you know, when, when someone does sand that corner down, so then it becomes really a pleasure to use, then they can share it with everybody and everybody benefits, you know, so then now you have four developers uh, being able to benefit from that time savings uh, rather than just one. And if it's a time savings or some, you know, ergonomic feature that can save, you know, seconds or minutes, I mean, that's, that's actually pretty huge. Uh, and those things really do, those micro transactions, say, they, they add up. You know, they add up for one developer. That's why we use this, cons- this, this highly extensible editor. So if they add up for one developer and then you can multiply that across 10, you know, you're actually talking about you know, real cost savings and, and really, really effective ergonomics. No, oh, yeah. And that brings up a pretty good point. Uh, some of them I didn't even think about, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's part of part and parcel of kind of the way we develop software. Like we, we, leave, we believe very strongly at our company, one of the values we have is in shared solutions. You know, we believe uh, that we're all kind of um, the, the tasks that we take on as developers. Some of them are unique, but a lot of most of them are the same. And so if most of them are the same, then we can, you know, we can erect a big, strong, bulletproof structure on which everyone can ride quickly, rather than having everybody kind of trace their own cow path through the jungle. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Sweet. Um, so now, uh, so you guys have a company wide config, but uh, what was the starting force, or who started the whole? Hey, we should have a config. For mm-hmm. uh, for the company, or or how did that evolve? That was that was definitely me. Um, okay. <laughs> well, so actually, so 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 no, I shouldn't take credit for that. I mean, there's so we actually started using a fork of Prelude. Um, so a fork of uh, what? Of Prelude. So Prelude is a starter kit. So oh, there's oh, a bunch the of, Emacs starter kit. Yeah, yeah there's yeah. a bunch of different Emacs starter kits. Um, the one that well, Space Max wasn't even around uh, at that point. Um, so we started with a fork of Prelude. Um, but the thing is, is, you know, we were customizing, everybody had their own kind of customizations of Prelude. Um, but it's, I think it's, 
it's a testament to this technique of having a shared configuration, whether it's SpaceMax, whether it's Play, Prelude, whether it's Emacs Starter Kit, or whether it's, you know, Doom is uh, one that we've been really looking at uh, a lot lately, um, which is, I mean, it's ostensibly one, one person's .emacs uh, .d directory, but I, I think there's a lot of contributors and a lot of people who use it. Um, but whether it's any one of those, it's a testament to how effective it is that you can build such an awesome out-of-the-box experience. I mean, if you've ever used Prelude, you know, you, uh, you basically start out with it and it downloads probably 30 packages and configures them and it looks pretty. Like, you know, just without you doing, writing a single line of ELISP, it looks pretty. Uh, it's got support for projects. It's got support for fuzzy matching. It's got support for completion. It's got support for, uh, you know, IntelliSense, Code Insight, or whatever you want to call it. Um, it's got nice ergonomics for making sure for, for, you know, managing files. It comes bundled with Magit. It's like, you know, it's got, it's got everything. Um, it's a really, it is something that can, you know, compete on par with the very, the most modern of editors. Um, and so I really, really like that. And I don't think that, I don't think that any one developer would get there on their own. Um, just, just hacking around uh, without the support of the community with the out the ability to share. I mean, the, the person who did, uh, you know, the, the uh, Doom Emacs package, like, did, but I don't know if they would have after having seen, like, Space Max and Prelude and what, you know, what those things are capable of. Um, uh, so, so, you know, seeing that value and then wanting, but there were definitely changes that I wanted to make to Prelude to account for the type of development that we did. Um, that maybe weren't the most important thing to have in Prelude Core, um, and so we forked it and maintained our own our own uh, copy of it. But but those things, those types of envelop, uh, development that we did, like you know, we're heavy into front ends. So we do a lot of JavaScript development, for example, uh, and so we had a lot of customizations to the way um, uh, to kind of the brace Prelude JavaScript config, and so. Um, <clears throat> So, but I wanted, those were valuable. So I wanted to make sure that we shared those with everybody at the company. And again, if, you know, we've had these enhancements that really make editing JavaScript code a lot better, then why not have every developer be able to benefit from that immediately? And if we make a change, have them be able to benefit from it, not by, you know, not by me telling them about it so that they can add it to their own Emacs config, maybe someday, maybe later, but they can just update the package and, and away you go. So, uh, so the Emacs config, uh, it's uh, hosted on GitHub, right? Do you mm -hmm. guys have um, CI set up with that as well, or we do? So the, our 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 configuration is, I think, a little bit unique in that we're it's set up on GitHub, uh, and we do have CI, uh, but it's not distributed. It's not a Git repository that you check out into your own home directory. It's actually distributed as a as an uh, Elist package archive. And so um, what you do is now it probably ought to be the only one uh, or the, the only thing that in your init.el, uh, we actually have some strategies which for, for how you can layer on cut your own customizations on top of it, uh, which I can get into later. But, but it, what it does is, is um, when we make a change, it actually builds it. If we have a test suite and it runs against the test suite. And if the test suite passes, then it uh, 
actually pushes it up to our um, our uh, ELPA archive, or I guess our I have too many archives in there. It's an ELIS package that it pushes up to the ELIS package archive, and so we actually maintain ELPA.frontside.io um, with our own packages. And so then uh, the advantage of that is there's you know kind of really twofold advantages of that. One is that because we distribute it as a package, updating it doesn't involve like pulling in new changes, rebasing them from upstream, then kind of you know making sure that your own commits there's no merge conflicts or anything like that. Um, what happens is Instead, you just update the FrontMax package and it just, you know, it updates all the packages that it needs to and updates the configurations. You restart Emacs and you're up and running. Um, there's no, you don't have to get involved with Git at all. Oh, that's, that's pretty, that's a pretty smart strategy. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's worked out really, really well. It turns out like setting up your own ELPA is a little bit harder than I think it ought to be. Um, but there's some things that we've learned that we might have been, might have been able to do it better, but it's still a little bit of a pain. Um, there's not like, it, it would be nice if it was like NPM or Ruby gems or pip or literally every, it seems like every other package manager, there's no open Emacs package archive. Um, and I don't know if that has to do with security or just culture or whatever, but every, everything is, you know, kind of Melpa, which is the biggest third party yeah. archive is curated. So you have to really, you know, they've got a gate in front and you have to put forward your case as to why this is a valuable package uh, before they'll actually include it. And I don't know that that's necessarily a bad strategy, but if you want to, you know, we, we proposed this originally to the maintainers of Melpa and they kind of said, well, we're not really, you know, we don't maintain shared configurations on Melpa. There's a few, uh, but we don't, we've made a commitment not to do it anymore. And, while I would have liked for them to have made an exception for me, I definitely understand um, the the desire or the you know the impetus not to. So we set about setting up our own, uh, and there were a bunch of different hoops uh, that we had to jump through. But once we got it set up, it's really nice to have your own continuous integration and delivery, and so that you can uh, you can you know just push it up automatically uh, and distribute it to everywhere. Oh, nice, sweet. Um, do you remember any of the major challenges you had in setting up uh, uh, Melpa? Yeah. Or, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do, I do. So, um, so the first was, the first, I mean, basically our package archive is automatically deployed to uh, an S3 bucket. Um, <clears throat> and the, but the problem is, is, you know, we wanted to serve it over SSL. Uh, because we wanted to make sure that you know there were it was the packages that you were downloading were at least coming from you know elpa.frontside.io, um, and so I think the hardest part was actually the Emacs like the package code client, and this is just getting a little bit too into the weeds. Was not what was it doing? We basically had to modify the request that was going out. And so we kind of had to monkey patch a variable inside package.el so that it would properly handle the SSL negotiation because the SSL client was a little bit Byzantine uh, mm -hmm. with inside Emacs. Um, I don't remember the details exactly, so I'll keep it intentionally vague, but getting it to play nice 
was a little bit of a pain. We also, there was a thing that we had to do. Uh, we had to make our, we had to fort cask, which is, um, uh, a, you know, the Emacs dependency resolution uh, and development tool. Uh, yeah. and that wasn't, that was a little bit difficult to figure out. So there was, there was definitely, there were some yaks that needed to be shaved. Uh, and so <laughs> suffice it to say there was a lot of yak hair on the floor, uh, by the time, uh, that whole thing got stood up. Uh, but now that it's up and running, it's really, really great. And, and we've got, uh, a set of integration tests and unit tests against the package. We don't go so far as to test key bindings. Um, uh, but we do make sure that, for example, when you install the package, that it completely, it will download everything off the internet and boot up without errors. So we have kind of a grand integration test. And then for, you know, custom features, we do have unit tests uh, for any of our own functions that we write. Okay, sweet. So, um, <clears throat> so after having all that set up, uh, you mentioned something about uh, when you download the Emacs configuration that there was some way that you can make your own uh, changes on top of that, that you guys had a certain procedure? Uh, yes. Could you go a little into detail about that? Yeah, so when, uh, so FrontMax is the name of our shared configuration. Uh, it's at github.com slash the front side slash FrontMax. And so it's installed as a package. And so we just use a very Emacs solution, which is to have hooks. So we have several places that you can hook into in the FrontMax initialization process uh, to add your own custom configurations. So the first thing that it does is it reads uh, this thing that's inside your home directory called config.el. And that sets, that's before any FrontMax code actually runs. Uh, there's a bunch of configuration variables that you can set. So things like the theme, things like your, you know, your JavaScript indent or, or whatever. And then as it's running, it will read those variables and it will configure itself. And then afterwards, there are also, and you can just drop any, uh, you can drop any, you know, EL file inside of a directory called initializers and FrontMax will, will run all of those initializers after itself, it itself has been um, booted. And so there's, we haven't really found any need to go uh, any more fine, de- fine grained than that. It's kind of these two hooks, one to set static configuration variables, and then one to run code based on those uh, initialization variables. So for example, when I do ex- experimental features, uh, I'll just have like a, you know, experimental.el in my initializers directory. And that will just do things like, I was recently playing around with um, the TypeScript tide mode, um, <clears throat> which if anybody's ever used it, it's really, it's really fantastic. It, it, um, analyzes your TypeScript code base and you get completion and documentation and uh, refactorings and things like that. And so I was kind of playing around with different key bindings about maybe using it for JavaScript mode instead of JS2 mode. Uh, but all that was like experimental and I didn't really want it to be in the package because it just didn't make sense to do it at that point. So I just dropped it all in initializer. And so you have kind of free range to do whatever you want in those initializers. And so you're, what you're doing is instead of layering on, you know, commits, you just, the, the composition between the base configuration and your, your changes happens just on the file system. Okay. All right. So, so um, do you guys do any, uh, 
like uh, code reviews with each other? You guys ever find yourself like, oh, what uh, I was expecting this kind of key binding to do X or Y, but it ended up doing <laughs> A or something? Uh, no, no, that's actually one of the advantages of having a shared config is every, you know, the key bindings are uniform and you really have to kind of agree on the ergonomics of them and debate them. And, you know, if you're working by yourself, people will just be like, ah, this key binding, whatever, I'll just do it. And there's not a lot of thought that goes into it. And then it becomes burned into your muscle memory. And, and you know, what? it's fine for you. Um, but it might not integrate into other people's key bindings. And so, you know, I think by you kind of like replicate the community of Emacs itself by having, you know, these kind of well-worn bindings that everybody understands just in a very, in a, in a smaller fashion. Um, but it, where you, where it's, it's deliberate, it harmonizes with the other things and, you know, everybody shares those, 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 uh, those same key bindings. So, it would be very weird if I, you know, I had something different than like control N and control P. Um, we don't, and it's actually great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't recommend messing with, uh, you know, the core key. Value. <laughs> no, definitely yeah. not. Yeah. yeah definitely. All right. So, uh, with, uh, so now the important question, how many, uh, did you guys have any BIM users before this? Did you <laughs> were able to convert any? Yeah. yeah, actually I can, there's two of note. Um, um, we had one, uh, one who was actually one of our clients. Um, and I don't think he uses our shared config, but he definitely saw what we were doing with Emacs. Um, and, uh, he first, he started running Emacs in evil mode and then he started running. Uh, he just, you know, he, he was like, nah, you know what, if I'm just going to learn Emacs, I'm just going to learn it. And then, so he, he turned off evil mode and was really, really, really happy. Uh, but I don't know. He might have gone, you know, a lot of people love Space Max. Um, so I, I don't know about that. And then uh, we currently have one person who is in the process uh, of moving over. And I don't know what he's going to do in terms of his key bindings. If he's going to try and go the evil route or just, you know, go kind of vanilla, uh, vanilla Emacs or holy, holy mode, as it's called. Okay. Yeah, that's that's the way I learned it as well. Just straight no config. I didn't even know that uh you packages existed. I was just trying it out, trying to figure out how everything uh-huh. worked. So uh-huh. I was Did doing, you come uh, over? Did you come over from VI? No, um I was using, you know, the mainstream editors uh Eclipse, mm-hmm. um whatever. I don't even remember the names. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, right. Whatever mainstream editors and um yeah, I remember uh coding since the homework assignments were all in Java. I was doing Java by hand in Emacs. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I was wondering where is this completion at that everybody keeps talking about. So yeah, I was struggling right. for a bit just doing everything manually. Uh, but uh, uh-huh. yeah, once I figured it out, yeah, I was in heaven. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yep. So you've also made some contributions to what was it JS mode two or yes. So I made, so um, one of the things that was very frustrating for me uh, being an Emacs user, and this is I think in probably 2014 uh, is when ES six modules came out Uh, and JS two mode. So ES six modules for people who aren't JavaScript coders are are basically a way to do static imports uh, in JavaScript so before there was kind of only dynamic scope uh, where, you know, you just have kind of these, most of 
your values were lexically bound, but then you just kind of have these rando variables that are dynamically bound. And ES6 modules let you move away from that by actually importing uh, importing code from modules. So there are no symbols. You know, there's no symbols that aren't either bound inside of a file or a function or statically imported um, from, from a module. And so, but JS2 mode didn't have support for that. Uh, and so every time as we started migrating all of our JavaScript code over to using ES6 modules, uh, you know, the syntax highlighter would go nuts. The refactorings didn't work. And, you know, we depend very highly on uh, JavaScript refactoring because it's one of the great things that you get with Emacs. Um, and so I kind of filed an issue on JS2 mode and nothing happened and nothing happened. And then I kind of realized, okay, well, nobody's going to do this. I guess I'm going to have to do it myself. And so kind of just rolled up my sleeves. I'd never written any e-list before that, that, uh, and then just kind of dove into it uh, to try and add support for ES6 modules to JS2 mode. So after signing my uh, GNU contributors agreement, you know, I went to work and I don't know if the, the code was the, the best, but it was well unit tested. And so <clears throat> um, I was able to, you know, add that support uh, and, and get it so that you can, you know, you can treat like statically bound variables just like you can any other variables. Um, so both at the syntax level and the refactoring level and all that stuff. So that was good. Um, but that was, that was my contribution. It was my first introduction to ELISP. Okay. Yeah, sweet. That's that's pretty awesome. Just start contributing right from the start. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, it only took 17 years. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, motivation. <laughs> All right. So um, what is, since we're talking about JS, what are some of the core packages uh, that you guys use to help you with your everyday JS? And um, also, are there any specific packages to help you with your specific framework? Because I know like uh, React has like their its own JS mode mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So usually, so so the things that we um, the things that we needed to have in our configuration were, you know, one definitely all the snippets for the modes that we used or for the the frameworks that we used. Like you mentioned, you know, React, Ember, Mocha uh, was. Uh, a, a big one. And we initially ended up writing a bunch of snippets for Mocha. Um, so, and then, but then, you know, kind of the transformative ones were making sure that we had, uh, you know, JS2 completion and that we had uh, the JS2 refactor mode, which again was dependent on like multiple cursors. Uh, so JS2 refactor mode is a fantastic mode um, on which we rely super heavily and have, you know, for the past three years, uh, and what that allows you to do is, you know, in JS2 mode is kind of unique in modes, um, other or sorry, unique in non-Lisp modes in that there's a full JavaScript parser that comes with JS2 mode. It's written in ELISP uh, and it parses your file as you're going. It, it's actually understanding the entire syntax tree of your JavaScript file. And so what that means is then you can, you know, kick off functions that transform that JavaScript file or transform that tree, which is then, which is then uh, reflected back in the code that's, that's inside the edit buffer. And so for example, you can rename a variable. Uh, One of my favorite things is you can log out uh, an expression. And so what you can do is, 
you know, you can say, I want to take this and I want to log out this expression and it'll generate the log statement, you know, that says this expression equals, and then it'll pop the expression in line so that you can actually see it. It's a fantastic debugging tool. Uh, you can, you know, extract functions, you can rename functions, you can inline variables. So if you have, you know, if you have some value and it only appears in two places and for performance reasons, you want to inline it, you can just, you know, click it and it'll take that value and it'll substitute the, the, the right-hand side of the expression everywhere that that, that variable appears. Um, you know, it's all kind of the classic refactorings that you're used to with a thing like IntelliJ or an Eclipse, and it's right there in JavaScript mode. And so we love that. Um, but that was something that wasn't in Prelude. Um, it's something that looked like it wasn't going to get accepted into Prelude. And so, you know, we, we ended up putting it in. Hmm. Nice. Sweet. Right on. Um, so there are other things, other things. So other things actually critical is like JSX. Um, if you're developing React code, uh, JSX is broken by default in Emacs. And so you need RJSX mode. Uh, and in fact, so, so which is a um, extension of JS2 mode. Uh, so there's a lot of tools for making a modern, uh, and now we're actually experimenting with ty- TypeScript as well. So there's a lot of tools that are necessary for a modern web development experience uh, that we absolutely needed to have in all of our uh, in all of our packages or all of our our, our um, configurations. Okay, so um, yeah, uh, I mean, I was trying, uh, I was playing around with React and uh, and TypeScript as well, and. I mean, I realize that there's a lot of things that go on in yeah. in the JS world with, with you guys. So you guys are mm-hmm. great for liking that stuff. Uh, <laughs> yeah. well, hopefully we'll make it easier. You know, hopefully we'll make it easier for everybody else who wants to foray into that realm by saying, here's, you know, here's a, a something that's set up. If you're doing front-end development, if you're doing modern JavaScript development, then, you know, here's a suite of tools that you can use that's basically got your back covered. Other, oh, other things that we have, just to throw it out there, is we have um, some tools for parsing node stack traces so that you get compilation. You can you can parse compilation errors. Like Emacs just doesn't do that out of the box. Um, so things like that, too. Oh, that's pretty sweet. So did you guys build that parser yourself? or? Yeah, just had to do like some rando Emacs regular expressions uh, <laughs> <laughs> to parse stack traces. Yeah. yeah whatever gets the work done, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. I'm trying to think. Yeah, other stuff, modifications to your exec path. Um, so that if you're using if you're using Node, any installed Node module that you have in the project will, will be used instead of any global Node modules. But those that's all just, those are hairy implementation details. Just say that, you know, the, the, the suffice it to say that there's just a lot of sharp corners that we've sanded down. Okay, sweet, right on. Um, well, uh, let's see. Um, is there any questions that uh, I didn't ask that you felt that uh, would have been great addition? <laughs> I'm trying to think if we covered. You talked about um, you talked about the maintaining your own ELPA archive. I think that was um, you know that was that was definitely a good question. Um, I think I definitely got to answer, but I maybe just can't say it enough again. Just how awesome it is to distribute stuff as a package and not main, not actually use Git to maintain or not use a fork 
to maintain okay. the solution. <laughs> so I, I think having your own, having your dot files in Git is a good idea and everyone should do it. But having your dot files be a fork of someone else's dot files is like not scalable because oh, you're, yeah. const, you're constantly doing this pull, rebase, merge, conflict, ugh, dance. Oh, yeah. um, and, and being able to sidestep that and avoid it you know, and, and be able to keep up to date and making updates be a breeze. Because really that was the problem was we had the shared configuration, but people were still not keeping up to date. You know, they'd be weeks behind, months behind, because they just didn't want to have to deal with merging. They're like, Mm -hmm. I've got stuff to do. I just don't want to have to resolve conflicts, but that only makes it get worse. Uh, So then I would have to go around with everybody and help them get upgraded. Uh, And that's just not scalable. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, well, since you, since you guys ran into such a big, uh, like, you know, a moderate size issue of setting up your own, um, archive, do you guys set up like, uh, instructions in case anybody wants to do that or mm, I, you know what I have, I have my, I have my notes cause I take, I try to take copious notes of everything that I do. Um, <laughs> and I mean, I, thought about converting this into a blog post, but I've just got, there's always a lot of content that I need to write and produce. And mm-hmm. I mean, I love, I love, uh, I love my Emacs community dearly, but I don't know if y'all are, uh, you know, the best audience for monetizable content <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's, in terms yeah. of, uh, is that going to, you know, unfortunately for, for, for the blogs that I have to do, I, I have to keep on, I have to keep on, uh, on topic so that, because, so that people will buy our services. <laughs> yeah, no, no, yeah, no problem. No, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I'd be happy to like post like raw notes of the stuff of the steps that we had to take. Okay. Yeah, I'm pretty sure there's like uh, there's always like a small market that's always interested in in stuff, you know, done on random or maybe this is relevant for a, a portion of people. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Any- no, I, I definitely think there are people who would benefit from it, um, and so maybe I can post those notes. Um, I'm trying to think like, um, uh, yeah, what would be, I mean, we just, a gist would be an appropriate medium, uh, for that. Or, I mean, you can also look at the, you can look at the, the repository itself. Okay. Sweet. Uh, is there, um, uh, I, I cut you like midway. So is there any like, uh, other questions, uh, that, uh, would have been great or you think, uh, good or. Um, man, no, I don't think so. All right, sweet. So then, I guess uh, the, the final uh, final question, and uh, yeah, uh, what is your favorite Emacs package? <laughs> oh boy, there are so many, and they are so good, and there's so many great authors out there. I don't know if I can come up with one. Um, one, how about? But um, I, but I can definitely. Let, let me. Can I just? Can I give a couple? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Go for it. <laughs> so I think so. One actually, one actually converts into the other. So, or talks touches on one of the questions uh, that you hit earlier. So I'm I'm going to give two. I'll give two picks. I don't know if they're my favorite, but I think they're great packages. Uh, and the authors deserve a lot of credit. And I think that they deserve a lot of credit because they can they can carry the Emacs community forward um, in a way that people might not even think was possible. Um, so the first one is kind of. Um, uh, one that I just really love and is so effective when kind of demonstrating kind of the power is the undo tree. Uh, mm. Have you ever used it before? Uh, yeah, I, I used it. Yeah. 
So, I mean, you show that to like non-Emacs users and they're like, whoa, <laughs> mind blown. Uh, and so that actually, you know, I've, um, you know, you show that and that's, it's a, it's a thing where you can actually visualize the entire tree of edits that you ever made since you had a buffer open and you can, you can navigate anywhere in that tree. And so it's kind of like, instead of a linear undo history, you have a get like branching tree structure for your history, which you can navigate in real time with, you know, with your N, P, B, and F. Uh, and I'm sure you could do the same thing in Vim. Uh, maybe people have come up with these um, packages. I didn't even know that Emacs tracked that undo information. Um, and so I think it's just such a great package to use. It's a great demo. I mean, there are people I've shown so this the uh, who see that one package and they're like, okay, that's worth converting for. Um, nice. And so the fact that, you know, Emacs was like tracking that state internally the whole time uh, and someone just needed to come and write a visualization for it, I think it's pretty amazing. Um, the other one that I really, really like and would recommend for people who are getting into ELISP development is this package called Buttercup, which is a testing package. It's a, uh, a BDD framework, kind of like Mocha.js or RSpec if you're into Ruby, um, that for writing unit tests, and acceptance tests, but not using the ERT framework, which is extremely bare bones. So it has a great way to, you know, separate the side effects um, from your assertions. Uh, it has a nice, it reads really, really nicely. So you can see what's set up, what's teardown. You can share setup and teardown between test cases really easily by using a nested branching structure. Um, it's just, they're really a, they're really pleasant to, to write. It's got great matchers for making good error messages. Um, and the output is really, really readable. You can diagnose failed assertions really very quickly. And uh, it also has a really advanced spying and stubbing framework that comes with it. Uh, so you can stub functions, stub uh, variables. And so if you're thinking about getting into ELISP development, it's a great way to start and explore and kind of put up guardrails uh, to keep you from, you know, bashing into the walls and knocking your head off, uh, <clears throat> which is so easy to do with ELISP because it's so powerful. And so, you know, for me, those have been two kind of transformative packages. One, the first one that I mentioned is in terms of, you know, showing people the power how you know you can really do incredibly powerful things but have it feel just breezy yeah uh, you know demonstrating that so you know that's kind of an external pick and then internally it's been transformative for me uh to really be able to get in there and jump into the weeds with elisp you know having a nice good testing framework at my back so undo tree and buttercup oh sweet i've I don't think I've heard of Buttercup before, so that's interesting. I will have to check it out. So, yeah, whatever helps yeah. development. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we'll make it. If you're thinking about doing ELIST development, it makes it about one tenth as scary. Okay, sweet. That's well. That's good news then. <laughs> yeah. Well, just you know, for you know that for my style of development, um, it really just it you know makes it so much easier. Okay. Sweet. Right. All right. All right. Well, well, I think we reached the end. So, uh, thank you once again, Charles, for being uh, being here in the episode. All right. Thank you, Daniel.
All right. Uh, I'll see you later then. All right. Take it easy.